February fifth through eleventh of morning and evening, daily readings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy. Morning and evening, daily readings by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, February fifth. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, First John four fourteen. It is a sweet thought that Jesus Christ did not come forth without His Father's permission, authority, consent, and assistance. He was sent of the Father that He might be the Savior of men. We are too apt to forget that while there are distinctions as to the persons in the Trinity, there are no distinctions of honor. We too frequently ascribe the honor of our salvation, or at least the depths of His benevolence, more to Jesus Christ than we do the Father. This is a very great mistake. What if Jesus came? Did not His Father send Him? If He spake wondrously, did not His Father pour grace into His lips, that He might be an able minister of the new covenant? He who knoweth the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost as He should know them, never setteth one before another in his love. He sees them at Bethlehem, at Gethsemane, and on Calvary, all equally engaged in the work of salvation. O Christian, hast thou put thy confidence in the man Christ Jesus? Hast thou placed thy reliance solely on him, and art thou united with him? Then believe that thou art united unto the God of heaven. Since to the man Jesus Christ thou art brother, and holdest closest fellowship, thou art linked thereby with God the Eternal, and the Ancient of Days is thy father and thy friend. Didst thou ever consider the depth of love in the heart of Jehovah, when God the Father equipped his Son for the great enterprise of mercy? If not, be this thy day's meditation. The Father sent him. Contemplate that subject. Think how Jesus works what the Father wills. In the wounds of the dying Saviour see the love of the great I Am. Let every thought of Jesus be also connected with the eternal, ever-blessed God. For it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Evening, February 5th At that time Jesus answered. Matthew eleven twenty-five. This is a singular way in which to commence a verse. At that time Jesus answered. If you will look at the context, you will not perceive that any person had asked him a question, or that he was in conversation with any human being. Yet it is written, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father. When a man answers, he answers a person who has been speaking to him. Who, then, had spoken to Christ? His Father. Yet there is no record of it. And this should teach us that Jesus had constant fellowship with his Father, and that God spake into his heart so often, so continually, that it was not a circumstance singular enough to be recorded. It was the habit and life of Jesus to talk with God. Even as Jesus was, in this world, so are we. Let us therefore learn the lesson which this simple statement concerning him teaches us. May we likewise have silent fellowship with the Father, so that often we may answer him, 
and though the world wotteth not whom we speak, may we be responding to that secret voice unheard of any other ear, which our own ear, opened by the Spirit of God, recognizes with joy. God has spoken to us. Let us speak to God, either to set our seal that God is true and faithful to His promise, or to confess the sin of which the Spirit of God has convinced us, or to acknowledge the mercy which God's providence has given, or to express assent to the great truths which God the Holy Ghost has opened to our understanding. What a privilege is intimate communion with the Father of our spirits! It is a secret hidden from the world, a joy with which even the nearest friend intermeddleth not. If we would hear the whispers of God's love, our ear must be purged and fitted to listen to His voice. This very evening, may our hearts be in such a state that when God speaks to us, we, like Jesus, may be prepared at once to answer Him. Morning, February 6th. Praying Always. Ephesians six eighteen. What multitudes of prayers we have put up from the first moment when we learned to pray! Our first prayer was a prayer for ourselves. We asked that God would have mercy upon us, and blot out our sin. He heard us, but when He had blotted out our sins like a cloud, then we had more prayers for ourselves. We have had to pray for sanctifying grace, for constraining and restraining grace. We have been led to crave for a fresh assurance of faith, for the comfortable application of the promise, for deliverance in the hour of temptation, for help in the time of duty, and for succor in the day of trial. We have been compelled to go to God for our souls, as constant beggars asking for everything. Bear witness, children of God, you have never been able to get anything for your souls elsewhere. All the bread your soul has eaten has come down from heaven, and all the water of which it has drank has flowed from the living rock, Christ Jesus the Lord. Your soul has never grown rich in itself. It has always been a pensioner upon the daily bounty of God, and hence your prayers have ascended to heaven for a range of spiritual mercies all but infinite. Your wants were innumerable, and therefore the supplies have been infinitely great, and your prayers have been as varied as the mercies have been countless. Then have you not cause to say, I love the Lord, because He hath heard the voice of my supplication? For as your prayers have been many, so also have been God's answers to them. He has heard you in the day of trouble, has strengthened you, and helped you even when you dishonored Him by trembling and doubting at the mercy seat. Remember this, and let it fill your heart with gratitude to God, who has thus graciously heard your poor weak prayers. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Evening, February 6th Pray one for another. James 5.16 As an encouragement cheerfully to offer intercessory prayer, remember that such prayer is the sweetest God ever hears, for the prayer of Christ is of this character. In all the incense which our great high priest now puts into the golden censer, there is not a single grain for himself. His intercession must be the most acceptable of all supplications and the more like our prayer is to christ's the sweeter it will be thus while petitions for ourselves will be accepted our pleadings for others having in them more of the fruits of the spirit more love more faith more brotherly kindness will be 
through the precious merits of Jesus, the sweetest oblation that we can offer to God, the very fat of our sacrifice. Remember again that intercessory prayer is exceedingly prevalent. What wonders it has wrought! The Word of God teems with its marvelous deeds. Believer, thou hast a mighty engine in thy hand. Use it well, use it constantly, use it with faith, and thou shalt surely be a benefactor to thy brethren. When thou hast the king's ear, speak to him for the suffering members of his body. When thou art favored to draw very near to his throne, and the king saith to thee, Ask, and I will give thee what thou wilt. Let thy petitions be not for thyself alone, but for the many who need his aid. If thou hast grace at all, and art not an intercessor, that grace must be small as a grain of mustard seed. Thou hast just enough grace to float thy soul clear from the quicksand, but thou hast no deep floods of grace, or else thou wouldst carry in thy joyous bark a weighty cargo of the wants of others, and thou wouldst bring back from thy Lord for them rich blessings which but for thee they might not have obtained. O oh, let my hands forget their skill, my tongue be silent, cold, and still, this bounding heart forget to beat, if I forget the mercy seat. Morning, February 7th. Arise and depart. Micah 2.10 The hour is approaching when the message will come to us, as it comes to all. Arise, and go forth from the home in which thou hast dwelt, from the city in which thou hast done thy business, from thy family, from thy friends. Arise, and take thy last journey. And what know we of the journey? And what know we of the country to which we are bound? A little we have read thereof, and somewhat has been revealed to us by the Spirit. But how little do we know the realms of the future! We know that there is a dark and stormy river called Death. God bids us to cross it, promising to be with us. And, after death, what cometh? What wonder-world will open upon our astonished sight? What scene of glory will be unfolded to our view? No traveller has ever returned to tell but we know enough of the heavenly land to make us welcome our summons thither with joy and gladness. The journey of death may be dark, but we may go forth on it fearlessly, knowing that God is with us as we walk through the gloomy valley, and therefore we need fear no evil. We shall be departing from all we have known and loved here, but we shall be going to our Father's house, to our Father's home, where Jesus is, to that royal city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This shall be our last removal, to dwell forever with him we love, in the midst of his people, in the presence of God. Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on, and to forget the toil of the way. This veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping-stone to a world of bliss. Prepare us, Lord, by grace divine, for thy bright courts on high. Then bid our spirits rise and join the chorus of the sky. Evening, February 7th. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. Revelation 11.12 Without considering these words in their prophetical connection, let us regard them as the invitation of our great forerunner to his sanctified people. In due time there shall be heard a great voice from heaven to every believer, saying, Come up hither. This should be to the saints the subject of joyful anticipation. 
instead of dreading the time when we shall leave this world to go unto the Father, we should be panting for the hour of our emancipation. Our song should be, My heart is with him on his throne, and ill can brook delay, each moment listening for the voice, rise up and come away. We are not called down to the grave, but up to the skies. Our heaven-born spirits should long for their native air. Yet should the celestial summons be the object of patient waiting. Our God knows best when to bid us come up hither. We must not wish to antedate the period of our departure. I know that strong love will make us cry, O Lord of hosts, the waves divide, and land us all in heaven. But patience must have her perfect work. God ordains with accurate wisdom the most fitting time for the redeemed to abide below. Surely, if there could be regrets in heaven, the saints might mourn that they did not live longer here to do more good. Oh, for more sheaves for my Lord's garner, more jewels for his crown! But how, unless there be more work? True, there is the other side of it, that, living so briefly, our sins are the fewer. But, oh, when we are fully serving God, and he is giving us to scatter precious seed and reap a hundredfold, we would even say it is well for us to abide where we are. Whether our master shall say go or stay, let us be equally well pleased so long as he indulges us with his presence. Morning, February 8th. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Matthew one twenty one. When a person is dear, everything connected with him becomes dear for his sake. Thus, so precious is the person of the Lord Jesus in the estimation of all true believers, that everything about him they consider to be inestimable beyond all price. All thy garments smell of myrrh, and aloes, and cassia, said David, as if the very vestments of the Saviour were so sweetened by his person that he could not but love them. Certain it is, that there is not a spot where that hallowed foot had trodden, there is not a word which those blessed lips have uttered nor a thought which his loving word has revealed, which is not to us precious beyond all price. This is true of the names of Christ. They are all sweet in the believer's ear. Whether he be called the husband of the church, her bridegroom, her friend, whether he be styled the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the king, the prophet, or the priest, every title of our master, Shiloh, Emmanuel, Wonderful, the Mighty Counselor, Every name is like the honeycomb dropping with honey, and luscious are the drops that distill from it. But if there be one name sweeter than another in the believer's ear, it is the name of Jesus. Jesus. It is the name which moves the harps of heaven to melody. Jesus, the life of all our joys. If there be one name more charming, more precious than another, it is this name. It is woven into the very warp and woof of our psalmody. Many of our hymns begin with it, and scarcely any that are good for anything end without it. It is the sum total of all delights. It is the music with which the bells of heaven ring, a song in a word, an ocean for comprehension, although a drop for brevity, a matchless oratorio in two syllables, a gathering up of the hallelujahs of eternity in five letters. Jesus, I love thy charming name, tis music to mine ear. Evening, February 8th. He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. 
Many persons, if they ask what they understand by salvation, will reply, being saved from hell and taken to heaven. This is one result of salvation, but it is not one tithe of what is contained in that boon. It is true our Lord Jesus Christ does redeem all his people from the wrath to come. He saves them from the fearful condemnation which their sins have brought upon them. But his triumph is far more complete than this. He saves his people from their sins. O oh, sweet deliverance from our worst foes! Where Christ works a saving work, he casts Satan from his throne, and will not let him be master any longer. No man is a true Christian if sin reigns in his mortal body. Sin will be in us. It will never be utterly expelled till the Spirit enters glory, but it will never have dominion. There will be a striving for dominion, a lusting against the new law and the new spirit which God has implanted, but sin will never get the upper hand so as to be absolute monarch of our nature. Christ will be master of the heart, and sin must be mortified. The lion of the tribe of Judah shall prevail, and the dragon shall be cast out. Sir, is sin subdued in you? If your life is unholy, your heart is unchanged, and if your heart is unchanged, you are an unsaved person. If the Saviour has not sanctified you, renewed you, given you a hatred of sin and a love of holiness, he has done nothing in you of a saving character. The grace which does not make a man better than others is a worthless counterfeit. Christ saves his people, not in their sins, but from them. Without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If not saved from sin, how shall we hope to be counted among his people? Lord, save me now from all evil, and enable me to honor my Saviour. Morning, February ninth, And David inquired of the Lord. Second Samuel 5.23 When David made this inquiry, he had just fought the Philistines and gained a signal victory. The Philistines came up in great hosts, but by the help of God, David had easily put them to flight. Note, however, that when they came a second time, David did not go up to fight them without inquiring of the Lord. Once he had been victorious, and he might have said, as many have in other cases, I shall be victorious again. I may rest quite sure that if I have conquered once, I shall triumph yet again. Wherefore should I tarry to seek at the Lord's hands? Not so, David. He had gained one battle by strength of the Lord, venture upon another until he had ensured the same. He inquired, Shall I go up against them? He waited until God's sign was given. Learn from David to take no step without God. Christian, if thou wouldst know the path of duty, take God for thy compass. If thou wouldst steer thy ship through the dark billows, put the tiller into the hand of the Almighty. The rock might be escaped if we would let our Father take the helm. Many a shoal or quicksand we might well avoid, if we would leave to his sovereign will to choose and to command. The Puritan said, As sure as ever a Christian carves for himself, he'll cut his own fingers. This is a great truth. Said another old divine, He that goes before the cloud of God's providence goes on a fool's errand. And so he does. We must mark God's providence leading us. And if providence tarries, tarry till providence comes. He who goes before providence will be very glad to run back again. 
I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go, as God's promise to his people. Let us, then, take all our perplexities to him, and say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Leave not thy chamber this morning without inquiring of the Lord. Evening, February ninth. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or the evil one. Luke eleven four. What we are taught to seek or shun in prayer, we should equally pursue or avoid in action. Very earnestly, therefore, should we avoid temptation, seeking to walk so guardedly in the path of obedience that we may never tempt the devil to tempt us. We are not to enter the thicket in search of the lion. Dearly might we pay for such presumption. This lion may cross our path or leap upon us from the thicket, but we have nothing to do with hurting him. He that meeteth with him, even though he winneth the day, will find it a stern struggle. Let the Christian pray that he may be spared the encounter. Our Saviour, who had experience of what temptation meant, thus earnestly admonished his disciples, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. But let us do as we will. We shall be tempted, hence the prayer, Deliver us from evil. God had one son without sin, but he is no son without temptation. The natural man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards, and the Christian man is born to temptation just as certainly. We must be always on our watch against Satan, because, like a thief, he gives no intimation of his approach. Believers who have had experience of the ways of Satan know that there are certain seasons when he will most probably make an attack, just as at certain seasons bleak winds may be expected. Thus the Christian is put on a double guard by fear of danger, and the danger is averted by preparing to meet it. Prevention is better than cure. It is better to be so well armed that the devil will not attack you, than to endure the perils of the fight, even though you come off a conqueror. Pray this evening first that you may not be tempted, and next that if temptation be permitted, you may be delivered from the evil one. Morning, February 10th. I know how to abound. Philippians 4.12 there are many who know how to be abased who have not learned how to abound. When they are set upon the top of a pinnacle their heads grow dizzy and they are ready to fall. The Christian far oftener disgraces his profession in prosperity than in adversity. It is a dangerous thing to be prosperous. The crucible of adversity is a less severe trial to the Christian than the refining pot of prosperity. What leanness of soul and neglect of spiritual things have been brought on through the very mercies and bounties of God. Yet this is not a matter of necessity, for the Apostle tells us that he knew how to abound. When he had much, he knew how to use it. Abundant grace enabled him to bear abundant prosperity. When he had a full sail, he was loaded with much ballast, and so floated safely. Needs more than human skill to carry the brimming cup of mortal joy with a steady hand. Yet Paul had learned that skill, for he declares, In all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. It is a divine lesson to know how to be full. For the Israelites were full once, but while the flesh was yet in their mouth, the wrath of God came upon them. Many have asked for mercies that they might satisfy their own heart's lust. Fullness of bread has often made fullness of blood, and that has brought on wantonness of the spirit. When we have much of God's providential mercies, it often happens that we have but little of God's grace, 
and little gratitude for the bounties we have received. We are full and we forget God, satisfied with earth, we are content to do without heaven. Just assured it is harder to know how to be full than it is to know how to be hungry. So desperate is the tendency of human nature to pride and forgetfulness of God. Take care that you ask in your prayers that God would teach you how to be full. Let not the gifts thy love bestows estrange our hearts from thee. Evening, February 10th. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Isaiah 44:22. Attentively observe the instructive similitude. Our sins are like a cloud. As clouds are of many shapes and shades, so are our transgressions. As clouds obscure the light of the sun and darken the landscape beneath, so do our sins hide from us the light of Jehovah's face and cause us to sit in the shadow of death. They are earth-born things and rise from the miry places of our nature, and when so collected that their measure is full, they threaten us with storm and tempest. Alas, that, unlike clouds, our sins yield to us no genial showers, but rather threaten to deluge us with a fiery flood of destruction. O ye black clouds of sin, how can it be fair weather with our souls while ye remain? Let our joyful eye dwell upon the noble act of divine mercy, blotting out. God himself appears upon the scene, and in divine benignity, instead of manifesting his anger, reveals his grace. He at once and forever effectually removes the mischief, not by blowing away the cloud, but by blotting it out from existence once for all. Against the justified man no sin remains. The great transaction of the cross has eternally removed his transgressions from him. On Calvary's summit the great deed, by which the sin of all the chosen was forever put away, was completely and effectually performed. Practically let us obey the gracious command return unto me. Why should pardoned sinners live at a distance from their God? If we have been forgiven all our sins, let no legal fear withhold us from the boldest access to our Lord. Let backslidings be bemoaned, but let us not preserve in them. To the greatest possible nearness of communion with the Lord, let us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, strive mightily to return. O Lord, this night restore us. Morning, February 11th. And they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. Acts 4.13 Christians should be a striking likeness of Jesus Christ. You have read lives of Christ, beautifully and eloquently written, but the best life of Christ is His living biography, written out in the words and actions of His people. If we were what we profess to be, in what we should be, we should be pictures of Christ. Yea, such striking likeness of Him, that the world would not have to hold us up by the hour together and say, Well, it seems somewhat of a likeness. But they would, when they once beheld us, exclaim, He has been with Jesus. He has been taught of Him. He is like Him. He has caught the very idea of the holy man of Nazareth, and He works it out in His life and everyday actions. A Christian should be like Christ in his boldness. Never blush to own your religion. Your profession will never disgrace you. Take care you never disgrace that. Be like Jesus, very valiant for your God. Imitate him in your loving spirit. 
Think kindly, speak kindly, and do kindly, that men may say of you, He has been with Jesus. Imitate Jesus in His holiness. Was He zealous for His Master? So be you. Ever go about doing good. Let not time be wasted. It is too precious. Was He self-denying, never looking to His own interest? Be the same. Was He devout? Be you fervent in your prayers. Had he deference to his father's will? So submit yourselves to him. Was he patient? So learn to endure. And best of all, as the highest portraiture of Jesus, try to forgive your enemies as he did. And let those sublime words of your master, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do, always ring in your ears. Forgive, as you hope to be forgiven. Heap coals of fire on the head of your foe by your kindness to him. Good for evil. Recollect is godlike. Be godlike, then. And in all ways, and by all means, so live what all may say of you. He has been with Jesus. Evening, February 11th Thou hast left thy first love. Revelation 2, 4 Ever to be remembered is that best and brightest of ours when we first saw the Lord, lost our burden, received the roll of promise, rejoiced in full salvation, and went on our way in peace. It was springtime in the soul. The winter was past. The mutterings of Sinai's thunders were hushed. The flashings of its lightnings were no more perceived. God was beheld as reconciled. The law threatened no vengeance, justice demanded no punishment. Then the flowers appeared in our heart. Hope, love, peace, and patience sprung from the sod, the hyacinth of repentance, the snowdrop of pure holiness, the crocus of golden faith, the daffodil of early love, the garden of the soul. The time of the singing of birds was come, and we rejoiced with thanksgiving, we magnified the holy name of our forgiving God, and our resolve was, Lord, I am thine, wholly thine, all I am and all I have, I would devote to thee. Thou hast bought me with thy blood, let me spend myself and be spent in thy service. In life and in death let me be consecrated to thee. How have we kept this resolve? Our espousal love burned with a holy flame of devoutness to Jesus. Is it the same now? Might not Jesus well say to us, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Alas, it is but little we have done for our master's glory. Our winter has lasted all too long. We are as cold as ice when we should feel a summer's glow and bloom with sacred flowers. We give to God pence when he deserveth pounds, nay deserveth our heart's blood to be coined in the service of his church and of his truth. But shall we continue thus? O Lord, after Thou hast so richly blessed us, shall we be ungrateful and become indifferent to Thy good cause and work? O quicken us that we may return to our first love and do our first works. Send us a genial spring, O Son of Righteousness. End of February 5th through 11th Recording by Aimee